the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome, listeners. Today, I have Dr. Preston. Dr. Ed Preston was my mentor when I came into orthopedics, hard to believe, but almost 25 years ago. Thanks for being here, Dr. Preston. My pleasure, Sam. My pleasure. Really excited about this. I've had this idea of doing a podcast with you for a long time, and we're just now getting to it, but I'm glad that you're able to come on. When we worked together, you practiced as a generalist, and I we did a lot of joints, but you did a lot of everything. We did a variety of cases. I remember doing open rotator cuffs and joint replacements. We didn't really do spines, but we did ankle fractures, did a lot of stuff. And we had talked about the fellowship there, but did you have a favorite diagnosis that was you know, I, I want to see this. And on the flip side of that, did you ever have a least favorite thing that you really didn't want to see? I really enjoyed the general practice. I felt that my special expertise was hip joint replacement because that's what I had done so much of in Boston under doctors O. Frank and Harris. Particularly like that. Here's a little funny little story about that I'll pass on. Dr. O'Frank pioneered the so-called cup arthroplasty. And it was an operation in which he... Uh, dislocated the arthritic joint, reamed it out, cleaned it out, and then put an interposition cup made of vitalium in the joint space. It wasn't cemented at all, and there was a motion between the cup and the socket and the femoral head in the cup. And uh, he was an incredibly expert surgeon, and he got these wonderful results. I mean, it was sensational results. I, I remember seeing patients of his who one in particular was a professor at MIT who told me that since that cup arthroplasty, he had taken an interest in mountain climbing, of all things. I don't think he did use pitons, but, but you know, strenuous hikes. The problem with the cup arthroplasty was it was a very difficult operation and didn't get catch on widely in the country because it was difficult to get the good results that Dr. O. Frank was able to get. About just when I was finishing up my training in Boston, uh, Dr. Charlie developed the total joint arthroplasty, the complete joint replacement using the cemented socket in, with polyethylene socket and the cemented femoral component. And it took off, you know, like crazy. And surgeons could put that in and get the results they could not get with the cup arthroplasty. So the, the cup arthroplasty was put very quickly on the shelf. Sort of nationwide, orthopedists went to this total joint arthroplasty. And that's just about the time I came to UNC. As an expert in doing the cup arthroplasty, and I uh, realized that that was not going to be the way to go, particularly training residents. Couldn't be training them in that technique, but that was going to be an obsolete technique. So I called uh, Don McCollum, who was an orthopedist at Duke. I knew him well, and I said, here's my dilemma, Don. I'm, I'm trained in hip joint replacement surgery, but it's the cup arthroplasty, and I haven't done the total joint replacement of Charlie. And Don said, well, come on over here. We'll work together for a few months. Well, I thought that was incredible. So uh, I was at Duke with Don McCollum, not full time, but every week uh, on helping and doing the uh, total joint replacements, and got the technique down uh, that way. Intensive uh, fellowship there, right? Yeah, so uh, from that point on, we were doing the, uh, you know, the Charlie total joint replacement at UNC, and the cup vanished from sight. 
uh, just totally. Another interesting thing, Sam, uh, when I was training at the Mass General in Boston, there was no total knee replacement prosthesis. And a fellow named Bill Jones, North Peters there, developed what he called the MGH knee prosthesis, nothing but a femoral replacement component, nothing done to the tibia. And we put those things in, and they were they weren't cemented. They had a stem, and they were better than the severe arthritic joint, but they weren't much better. And the whole business of knee replacement prostheses just sort of began taking off, and we began seeing these various kinds of total knee prostheses. And some of them were really pretty bad, and they were difficult to put in, difficult to align. I remember there was one in particular developed by Canadian orthopedists that for a short time was quite popular. It was a very difficult one to get in in the proper alignment. And those early years with the knee, knee prostheses were pretty rough. But there was a steady improvement year by year because there was a huge demand you know, for the prosthesis. Those were interesting times. We were right in that transition. Now, another fascinating transition, Sam, was the knee arthroscopy because when I started my training, the understanding was, look, if you think there's a torn meniscus, take it out. And if you take out one that's healthy, it doesn't matter because they don't do anything anyway. <laughs> that was a teaching. One of my mentors, a fellow named Tom DeLorme, who uh, liked sports medicine, and uh, Tom said he's interested in the ACL. But he said, you know, it's a funny thing. The ACL doesn't really have a role in the knee. And Tom did showed me some Sinate. Yeah, he showed me some Sinate radiographs of knee instability that he was able to demonstrate on this Sinate. He said, it's funny. You can see it do that. But he said, it doesn't really make any difference. One big problem at the time was that no one knew how to replace the ACL. There was no technique. And there was a, there was a, uh, a veterinary surgeon who was trying to suture repair the torn ACL in this mid-substance. And Sam, you can, you can remember how that would have gone, you know, it's like sewing two ends of a mop together. Uh-huh. And uh, so that, that was the attitude on, the, on that. When the uh, arthroscope came out, the first ones and this huge camera we had to hang from the ceiling, and then the stiff articulated arms, the real thick scope, hard to get the thing in the joint that we didn't really know what we were seeing. And there were a number of doctors who said, look, I'm not about to learn to do that. That that thing is going nowhere. And I'll just keep opening the knee and doing what I do. Well, in no time at all, the technology left them behind. Totally. Same thing was true with the evolution of the uh, shoulder. Yeah, the shoulder. Yeah, we were all doing yeah, open yeah. shoulder work, you know, the uh, the near prosthesis and the decompressions and the rotator cuff repairs. And those early days with the scope were awkward and difficult. It was hard to get the job done well, but clearly it was evolving, and, you know, and the open approach was was fast becoming obsolete. And there were plenty of surgeons who said, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to learn to do that. I'm happy with opening the shoulder. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, you've heard that. And the other thing, Sam, that, that happened, uh, you might be interested to see on the backs, on the spines. When I was training, it was a mess. I mean, the spine surgical work. And Dr. Barr at the Mass General Hospital uh, published a paper in the New England Journal identifying for the first time the ruptured disc with sciatica. He and a neurosurgeon there at the Mass General. And people began searching for the ruptured disc. And, uh, you know, every back problem with leg pain was a ruptured disc. And God, there was an awful lot of surgery for that. And a lot of it, of course, wasn't very satisfactory. It took a long time to shake out 
the exact standards you need to follow when working up those patients and managing them. There are a lot of lot of unhappy surgical results, and I'm sure you saw that, Sam, in your career. It took a long time to get that worked out. The uh, bind work finally became so so uh, technically involved that it became especially unto itself, you know, and it's now that's just about where it is. I think there are very few surgeons who dabble in the spine anymore. Uh-huh. It's just not not a not a practical thing at all. Not not a good idea, in fact. So I my own experience, is, and and of course the PA program was a Another part of my own career that was part of the evolution of the of the specialty of orthopedics and medicine in general. So uh, I sort of look on this, Sam, as the whole field is always evolving and it's always in a state of change. And from the time I began to the when I finally retired in '06, I retired in '06. It never stopped evolving, and I'm sure if I looked now it would look really unusual to me. I want to tell you, Sam, though, that I'm keeping my license active. I do the annual uh, 23-hour training program at UNC in in medicine just to keep up with the field and keep my license. But uh, I haven't been able to keep up with with developments in orthopedics. Uh, That's that's just not not easy to do that. Yeah, with all that time that you spend, it's it's hard to let something go when when that's, you know, such a big part of your life. It is. Let me ask you one more question here, Dr. Preston. One of the things I wanted to talk about with you, like I said earlier, you were such an important influence on my career and how I take care of patients, how I talk to patients, what I do. And I would say most of that came from you being my mentor, my teacher, and it it works out great. Uh, And I've passed it along to a lot of people myself. So what would you say as a mentor, what's some of the most important things or important aspects of being a mentor teacher, and on the flip side of that, about being a learner? As a mentor teacher, the very fundamental basic understanding is it all begins with trust of the patient and concern for the patient's welfare. And that's where everything has to finally come down, and that's where you have to stand. You've got to be committed to the patient, concerned about their welfare. That always comes first. And that's where you start. And so from that point, uh, the history taking and uh, the effort to understand what they're looking for and uh, what you have available to help. Also, it, it was an important thing to learn that many, many of these problems that we see in orthopedics are transient with time and patience and, and sometimes uh, some, some work in therapy of various kinds they can work themselves out to a satisfactory solution. Everything does not need surgery. And it's a good idea to make sure that before that's undertaken, that you've considered the other options, tried the other options if that seemed to be reasonable. And you've let the patient come to the point where they are convinced that uh, the surgery is the way to go. Uh, the understanding with the surgery is it doesn't always work out perfectly. Uh, so the patient needs to understand that. And the, so this all this needs some patience on the part of the doctor. That is, uh, you know, willingness to hold off a bit and be respectful and look to see what the patient wants. The other thing is we always have to work to know what our own limits are. And there are times when uh, it, it's uh, you have to recognize that and say, well, maybe uh, maybe Dr. So-and-so can uh, work with you on this particular problem. Uh, he might be more familiar with it than I am or something like that. A quick story. One of 
our patients, one of your patients actually, and I came into the picture, he said, yeah. well, well, Ed, you always tell me if I wait two years, I'll get better. <laughs> yeah, Sam, that is, that's the story I was just telling you. Uh, that's right, what right. he said. He said, you know, huh? you tell me that if I just give it two years, I don't know that I ever said that to anybody, but I think many times I took in time to be uh, better. Uh, oh. he, his name is yeah, Joe, and he got a very good laugh out of that. Yeah, we used yeah. to have a big time in clinic, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it was great. Yeah, we we had a good, very good working relationship. Dr. Preston, yeah, time is short, and I just wanted to thank you so much for being on today. This is great. We're going to make a few episodes out of this. And any other Good. thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, we've got a nationwide audience here of PAs and probably a few doctors and some non-PAs. So any other thoughts you'd like to share? Well, yeah, my thought is that orthopedics is a, is a great area to be able to work in. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The fact that you can work with all ages, both sexes, it, it's just nothing quite matches it. And I think people in the field of orthopedics are generally happy and pleased that they're there. I feel awfully lucky that uh, I was drafted and then assigned to orthopedics in the military and found a career in orthopedics. That was just absolutely good luck. And I'm grateful for that. So thank you, Sam. Enjoy talking to you. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. Preston. This is great. I really appreciate it. And if you ever needed a mentor, Dr. Preston was the guy. He took me under his wing and for a couple of years, you know, taught me orthopedics and that kind of made me where I am. So I got to thank you for that. And great stuff today. And Sam, I want you to know it was a great pleasure working with you. It was a, just an absolute pleasure. I'll never forget it. We had a great time. We had a great time. Yeah, all we the did. Time. We did. All right, Dr. Preston, thank you so much. Yep. Take care, Sam. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance and Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.